Let's pray together, church. Our fathers, we come before you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. We ask, oh God, that you take these next few moments. God, awaken us, stir us, conform us to the image of Christ. God, take this passage of Daniel, this gift to us. God, work in us. God, we know that you are at work. We know that you are on your throne. We humble ourselves before you and say, God, we are your servants. Call us into service. Do with us as you will. May your will be done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I went to a Houston Astros baseball game. Brian, you'd be proud. Got to watch the Astros play and hit a grand slam. And at the end of the game, we went to downstairs in the stadium to what was their gift shop. And in their gift shop, there were millions of dollars worth of clothes at least of what they would sell it for. And I looked around and I saw jerseys and I saw baseballs and I saw socks and I saw neckties. I even saw some weird pajamas. But none of that drew my eye. What drew my eye was was the hats. I thought, you know, That hat looks really nice. I went and looked at the hat. It was a blue hat. I thought, man, this one's nice. And as I ended up eventually purchasing the hat, Ash got one almost just like it, but a little bit different as well. I thought, you know, the hat is something that we take as, as an interesting item. Because if I walk in here with a Houston Astros hat, you automatically know something about me. If I walk in here with an LSU hat, you know something about me. If I walk in here with a dreaded A on my hat, you know something about me. But if I walk in here with a different kind of hat, maybe it's got a large round brim all the way around as a cowboy hat, you know something about me. Maybe it says tractor supply on it. You know something about me. And I would dare say as I look out to some of you men and even ladies, you have a hat. And sometimes when you wear that hat, it's to proclaim a certain identity. I want people to know that I'm a farmer and proud of it. I want people to know that I go to the racetrack and I'm proud of it. I want people to know, and I'll stick a little hook on my hat, that I'm a fisherman and I'm proud of it. I want people to know that I think I'm a cowboy and I'm proud of it. Our identity is wrapped up oftentimes in in what we proclaim. 
This morning, as we turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, I want to invite you to hit Daniel chapter 1. We look at the identity of four young men that are uprooted from their own home and brought to a foreign land in order to shape their identity of who they are. Will they change hats is the question today. As we turn there, as we get ready for our message this morning, uh, this year we're celebrating together in 2022. We're trying to be together as a church, do things together, encourage one another together. And that fellowship is important. And also, as is our fellowship with God. So let me read to you from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This is our passage of the year that I read most every week. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is what, church? That God is light, and in Him there is no what? No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Last week we did a... a, a, introduction to the book of Daniel. What was the history surrounding what was going on? Uh, We looked at how the nation of Israel had already fallen, how the the southern kingdom of Israel, the portion of Israel, which was kind of a, uh, a split over a civil war, the southern kingdom remained for many years after, hundreds of years after the northern kingdom fell. And this is where we found Daniel. And his friends were part of in Jerusalem in this area in the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, then we looked and we saw that Babylon had come in. And and as there were certain wars between Egypt and Babylon, we find Daniel and his people being taken out in the first wave of what we call deportations. And that is Babylon did their conquering in a different way than most nations. Uh, Rather than just conquering and then setting up camp where you would conquer, they would take the valuable people out of that land, bring them to their own land, and then reprogram, if you will, those valuable people into a new way of thinking and into a new identity. So in this first wave, you have Daniel leaving and heading to Babylon, and that's where chapter 1 starts. We also looked at what else is going around during this time, and that was that Jeremiah was prophesying. And then years later, Ezekiel would be brought out of Jerusalem and brought into exile, and he would do his prophecy. So all during this time, you've got Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all three of these books that are right next to each other with lamentations in the middle. All three of these books are happening at the same time. Finally, we looked at the idea that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And as we understand that presidents come, presidents go, governors come, governors go. But all throughout, God is ruling and he doesn't change the fact that he is ruling and reigning no matter who sits in the White House or on the throne Or in the governor's mansion, God is still ruling and reigning and accomplishing his purposes, even through the kings. As we'll see later, Daniel will pray that God moves the king's heart like a river runs through the land. God steers it. One other bit of information I want to give you just to remember, to help you remember. Somebody tell me how many letters are in the name Daniel. 
Help me out. How many letters are in the name of Daniel? All right, I got a couple fives. We need some people to count, learn how to count a little bit. Right? There are six letters. So this will help you remember that Daniel happened 600 years B.C. Okay? 600 years B.C. That's kind of a a way to remember the historical timeline. Abraham, 2,000 years B.C. Moses, 1,000 years B.C. Daniel, 600 B.C. So 600 years before Christ, Daniel comes along, six letters in his name, 600 years B.C. I hope you'll remember that for the rest of your life. I will. Daniel begins with familiar stories that we know. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall. Who could forget these stories? They're magnificent. You may have learned them as you were a child in Sunday school. You may have seen movies. You may have read books about them. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are much in an apocalyptic format. They're, they're highly symbolic and you see beasts and rams and goats and 70 weeks and, and all sorts of things that we'll get to. But most of all, what we're going to look at today is that Daniel shows us that God is sovereign even in a pagan world. Let me say that again. God is sovereign even in a pagan or godless world. And I made up a little rhyme for you that may help. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is ruling over them all. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is ruling over them all. Let's begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands, or into his hands, with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, Jehoiakim, let's talk about this king for a moment. He was a king who despised God, who did not do God's will, was against God. And what does the Lord do to him, church? What does the scripture say? He gave him into the hands of the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged the city. Now, if you're familiar with the besieging, they would surround the city. They wouldn't let any supplies in and out. It was a a brutal way of a slow starvation of people. They would surround the city and, of course, the city would set guard and and seek to defend herself, which many times they could. But unless the army went away, there was no way. And so they would often wait months and years for the people to give up because people inside were starving to death. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He came around Jerusalem, which is on a, a great hill or on a mountain, if you're familiar with it. They surrounded it. And. Uh, And overtook the city. And and look what specifically verse 2 says. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. Now when we read the Bible and we look at that and we say, wait. God gave his own nation into the hands of these tyrants. These evil empire. These Babylonians. How could God do such a thing? I mean, these are God's people. I'm God's child. Is he going to give me over to the tyrants? Is he going to give me over to the bad guys? Well, 
It's a fair question. If God loves me, is he going to allow me to suffer? Is he going to give me hard times in my life? To know the history, again, context always matters. My son will tell you the three C's of Bible reading are what? Context, context, context. You have to know the rest of the Bible to understand what's going on. And this is why we read and study the scripture. Look in Leviticus chapter 26. Look what the Lord says. The Lord brings his people out of Egypt. You remember that historic way in which God raised his people out of Egypt through the ten plagues. He brought his people out and then he gives them uh, a, a set of commands 613 commandments. The Ten Commandments are part of them. He gives them the law. And he tells them, follow the law and you'll be my people. Just do what I command, you'll be my people. Then we read Leviticus 26, 33, and it says this. And I will scatter you among the nations. This is if you disobey me. I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land will be a desolation. Your cities will be a waste. And here's what we learn about the character of God. God said, do this. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will, I will care for you. I will bless you. And you can go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want some more research, make a note of that. Go back and read it. But if you neglect my commandments, if you turn and walk away, I will pull my hand of protection from around you. I will leave. My presence will depart from being your God. And so let me tell you this. The Lord does not tolerate rebellion forever. The Lord does not tolerate rebellion indeterminately. Well, as a Christian in the 21st century, what do we say about that? Is God gracious to you? Church, help me out. Is God gracious to you? Yes, He is. What if we continue and continue and continue to disobey God's commands for our lives? What happens then? Here's what we understand about the character of God. God is gracious and forgiving. God is kind. And we sang this morning, he will hold me fast. Even when we stray, even when we recognize that we have done wrong, God will forgive us. And in turn, we ought to forgive one another. But is there a point in which we leave God's Kindness. And I don't see many hands, head shaking or moving, but the answer is yes. There is a point in which God's kindness will be removed from us. Now, I'm not saying that if you are a Christian, God is going to abandon you. What I'm saying is this. Please hear me very clearly. God oftentimes will bring us into discipline. As a Christian in order to turn our hearts back unto him. Let me read to you from Hosea chapter 6. Are you all with me this morning? Let me read this to you because this is important. 
Hosea chapter 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. Now, did you hear that? Who struck us, according to Hosea? The Lord did. The Lord brought his discipline upon the people that he might do what? Bind up the wounds. And you can think of it like this as a loving parent. If you have had children, you understand there are times that you have to have discipline upon your children. And if you let your children do whatever they want, whenever they want, they will grow up to be heathen. And there is a time in which in your own love, you must bring the hard discipline to your children. But it is done in love. And I can tell you, as I have disciplined my children, they come running back and they come recognizing their fault. And this is what God does. And this is when we look at the nation of Babylon coming into his people that God has given them over. That he might show them, you have crossed the line, you are in sin. And this is exactly what happens. The Lord gave Jehoiakim over. But what we must not forget is this. Look at the end of verse 2. What's the last phrase in verse 2, church? What does it say? That we may live before him. Don't miss that, y'all. If God allows discipline and pain and hurt in our lives, oftentimes that's to bring us to a place back to where we need to be. That we might live before him. And what does that mean, live before him? That means you think about a king and the people who come into his court or into his area. Those are the people who are before him. That word before him means in his presence. Because oftentimes what happens is, is even as a Christian, we think, well, I'm going to go do my own thing for a while. And we leave and try to abandon the presence of God and go seek out satisfaction in godless things. And what does God do oftentimes? He lets discipline come upon us to bring us back to living before him and in his presence. So let me make a bit of application this morning. Maybe there's a point like, Miss Carol, where you came and you said, I'm committing my life to the Lord. I want to follow in Jesus' footsteps. I want to identify as a Christian. But then the world called you away and lured you into something else. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're living in a place that's not really before the presence of God. And you may think, well, man, my life sure does stink right now. And maybe God is allowing things to happen to you to draw you back home, to draw you back where you need to be. The Lord does that, you know. And here's an example of exactly of that thing happening. And if you're there, let me give you this. Let me give you verse three. 
God is maybe calling you back into his presence. And look what verse 3 says. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Maybe you're at a place right now where you need to press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring that rains and water the earth. God will bring refreshing, life-giving rains, waters to your soul. Will you return to the Lord? If not, there may be a Babylon situation coming in your life. That's not a threat. That's just a reality to say, be aware. Be aware. God will refresh you if you will return to him. Come, let us return to him. Now back to Daniel. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and with him some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, that is the vessels, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, And place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now what's this talking about all of these vessels in verse 3? I'm sorry, in verse 2. The vessels he's talking about are are the things that were used in service of worship of their God. Uh, There were things that were in the temple and items that were um, well prepared and golden items and things that were of status. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do is he took those valuable things and he said, look, I'm taking those And I'm bringing him to my place. Why would he do such a thing? And let me just say it like this. Nebuchadnezzar was flexing. He was showing his muscles to say, I've conquered you. I've got your God stuff. And I am greater than your God. In fact, I can take your God stuff and bring it home to my home. And bring it to my place. I don't think very much of your God. And this was commonplace in this society. When you would conquer a land, you would bring the things back and and take them home to say, look who I am. In fact, we have another example in the scripture. Can y'all think of one? There's another example in scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 5, which comes earlier in history. But it's 1 Samuel chapter 5. Let me read it to you. The children of Israel had the Ark of the Covenant, and it was symbolized what, church? The, the presence of God. And they would oftentimes bring it out to war as a good luck charm, if you will. They would bring it out to battle, and, and this particular day, the rebellious children of Israel, God gave them, as the scripture says, into the hands of the Philistines. So God was not with them. And as they went to war, trotting out the Ark of the Covenant... They lost the battle, and guess what happened to the ark? They lost the ark too. The the enemy battle took this ark and took it home with them. And they said, well, we're greater than Israel, and we're greater than the God of Israel. So they put the ark of the covenant in their temple. Oh, you just wait. 1 Samuel 5 Verse 2 says this, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, this statue, 
had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So, so here, get the irony going on here. The Philistines defeat Israel. We beat you up. Look, we got your ark. Our God's greater than your God. In fact, we're going to put him in our temple because we own your God. And the next morning, what do we have? Dagon is face first in front of the ark of God. The people of Israel didn't do that. Who did that? God did that. Well, verse 3. I'll continue. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord again. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Oh, well, that must have been an accident. Let's get Dagon back up. We'll pull him back up. And then what happens? Face first again. And the Lord told them, no, that, that wasn't an accident. That was me showing you the truth. Now, I read you that story to remind you of this. Are y'all with me? Are y'all following along? Are y'all following along? God demonstrates who he is, the way he wants, and how he wants. God is God. God is God. He does not need me. He does not need you. God is God. Now, he is pleased to use us. Don't get me wrong. But God is God. And his whole army of people were defeated. And God said, I don't need you. I'm going to demonstrate my might by placing your God from the army that just won the battle at the feet, at the foot of my presence. Bring that into Daniel's realm as well. The first few chapters, in fact, the first six chapters of Daniel are going to show us this. And this is a truth I want, I want y'all to remember as we study through Daniel. God works these miracles that we know about and that we'll read about through the first few chapters of Daniel. God does these things in a pagan land to demonstrate to the pagan people that God is God. Let me say that again. What the Lord is doing in the first few chapters of Daniel is showing a group of pagan people that God is God. In fact, you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar himself later fall on his knees and recognize the greatness of none other than Yahweh, the Lord our God. It doesn't matter where you are, God is God. God. And 600 years BC, people would have looked at this area where we're sitting and worshiping God right now. They would have looked and said, What is this place? What is this land of swampy heat? And said, Nobody would want to live there. But God is God. And they wouldn't know that 2,600 years later, 
that you'd be sitting in a room, standing, praising, and honoring the Lord Most High. So friends, brothers, sisters, I want to tell you, God is God right here. And He has been God forever right here. Look in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent, to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I was part of a company that got bought out uh, several years ago. I was on the IT staff at that company, and and I can remember uh, it was a publicly traded company bought our smaller company, and, and as they did, they sent people in to explain what was going to happen with the buyout. And I can remember being part of that staff and thinking, oh, man, what, what's going to happen? Am I going to still have a job? What is it going to look like? And I can remember one of the people came in and said, well, this is how things are going to be. And as an IT group, we were thinking, okay, well, we don't really like that so much. And so we made suggestions and, and some talk back, and, and the responses sometimes were, this is how it's going to be. And, and as they came in, they began to evaluate, well, the people that are still there, are they worth keeping? And if you've ever been through something like that, you, you're always kind of on edge a little bit, and you're trying to show your value and your worth, and am I worth keeping? Are they going to want me to stay on and, and hang around? And you think about this situation of Babylon coming in. They're coming and looking for the best of the best. And like most companies who come in who buy would, would look say, well, you know, that's Steve Franklin. He's really good. But Caleb Balmer, I don't know about him. Let's, if we're going to make cutbacks, Caleb Balmer might go first. But we're going to really keep Steve because Steve, he has got it together. Well, that, that's kind of what's going on here is Babylon's coming in. And they're looking for the best of the best. Who can we take and make part of our court so that we can strengthen corporate Babylon, if you will? Let's make Babylon stronger and better. And they come in and they find some of the best of the youth and they find four youths without blemish. Now, can anybody guess the names of those four youths that they find? Anybody? All right. We got some good answers out there. I think, G Man, I think you got it. Who are they? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Good work. They come in and they say, All right, we got the best of the best. We're going to take them and put them in the king's court. But before we do that, we're going to take some time. And take the hat they're wearing. We're not a real big Houston Astros fan. We're going to take that hat off. 
We really like them Atlanta Braves. And so we're going to teach them how to wear the Braves hat really well. And we're going to teach them that when you're at the game, you've got to do this over and over obnoxiously until everyone around you is annoyed and you make chance and you do these. Did they still do that, Brian, at the game? I don't know. They still do that. But we're going to annoy everybody else in the league because we're doing this for three hours straight. This is what you do when you're a Braves fan. This is what you do. And that's what they do. They bring them to Babylon and they say, get your tomahawk. No, they say, these are our gods. This is what we do. This is how we eat. You are now part of us. Do things our way. And it is a forced paganization, if you will. It's my word for it. This is a forced paganization of four of the best, most brightest, and as the scripture says, those without blemish men. And let me stop for a moment and and make a little bit of application for us as we close out today. We'll get into the details of what that paganization looked like next week. But let, let me share with you. This is not unlike what is going on in our world today. Daniel is so applicable in so many ways. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you have come to the place where you have said, like Miss Carol, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ died, and through his death, my sin was atoned for, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that God raised him up, and in a similar way that God is going to raise us up, and me up one day, to be with him for all eternity. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he demonstrated it through his resurrection three days after his death. I believe that. And I believe it enough to abandon everything else around me, every other team in the league, if you will, and follow Jesus because I love him. I know what he did for me. I know who he is. I recognize that he's the Lord and I am giving my life unto him. If you're a Christian and you have, if you believe that, and if you've done that, there is a world of pressure around you to either punish you for doing that or to convert you away from continuing in that walk. Christian, you were, as it were, in the land of Babylon today. And while I have great regard for our country and great respect for all of the men and women who have given their lives and their efforts into making our country a place where justice is done and people have the rights and liberties they are so do we are in a culture that is increasingly and day by day becoming more and more godless and there is pressure 
or there is punishment upon Christians that is growing month after month, year after year. Just in the last five years, church, God's definition of, and the Bible's definition, therefore God's definition of marriage in our country has been undone and redefined. The simple meaning of what it means to be a male or a female have been usurped and redefined from God's creative design. Life and death in the womb and at the end of life are being challenged as the value of those who are alive. Those are the beginning of things that we face in our culture that wants to define things. Everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes. As the scripture speaks of ancient Israel, so we see happening today. And this is not a political sermon. This is a sermon to equip you as a Christian to say there are things going on in this world that are not of God. And the world, this country, and our society is going to try to rip that Christian hat off of your head. And is going to try to tell you that it's not okay to wear the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not okay to identify as a Christian because you are hateful or mean or this or that. You pick the bad name for you. Christian, as we read through the book of Daniel, we get a front row seat for someone who was unwilling to take away his own hat. And we see someone who trusted daily in God showing himself to be God and in someone being a faithful servant in a respectful way every time, but a faithful servant to his God. And so as we wrap up today, my question for you is this. Are you a Christian? Have you given yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ saves sinners who repent? And for all those who will not repent of their sin, their team, in the end, the scripture tells us God's team wins. And if you are not on his team, if you are not in his kingdom, if you are not in Christ, the payment is not just an L on your schedule. It is eternity in a place of condemnation and God's wrath. So my hope is that you have come to be a Christian. Secondly, it is this. If you are a Christian, that you look to God in, a, in an environment that is not so Christian and not so godly, that we look to God and we say, God, how can we serve you and remain unstained in the world that you have given to us? James says it like this. True and undefiled religion is this. And I use that religion word in a very good sense. That word has also been taken over to be something bad. It is not. True and undefiled religion is this. That you take care of widows, orphans, and remain unstained from the world. That's what James tells us. In a world that doesn't want us 
doesn't want us to practice our faith and to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, will we do that? So where are you? The world is changing. Our God is not. And his kingdom will stand forever. Christian, may I call you into the kingdom of God and to stand in the unchanging, unwavering, unmodifiable kingdom of God and be faithful to the king who is on the throne. Let us pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word to us that as there is influence and as there are ideologies and as there are compromises every day around us, God, may we remain faithful to you, our Lord, the, the, the king that gave us his life and who gave us new life. God, may we live in a way that is identified with Jesus Christ, our Lord, and him alone. And may we be willing to take a stand and not compromise and become like the world the godless, but may we be faithful to you, our God, day after day after day, and may we do it with gentleness and respect. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come to our time of response.